Welcome to episode 9 of Idiom America. Uh, last episode I talked about Teddy Roosevelt and all the idioms and words he came up with, uh, or at least that get attributed to him, and, and then I thought of a few episodes ago and how George Washington had the first use in print that I could find of the idiom, the tide is turning, and that got me thinking that it'd be fun to do a series of episodes dedicated to idioms or words that each U.S. president came up with, uh, or at least popularized. And I think there's something to this, as you need look no further than perhaps the most well-known and popular idiom throughout the world, uh, that simple yet versatile okay uh, that came from one of the least known and popular U.S. presidents, Martin Van Buren, uh, to see that there, there's something there. And the biggest part of, of, of why uh, presidents are such a rich language source, I think, is that uh, the words that they say just get more attention. Uh, they get discussed more in the newspapers and on the streets and later on on the radio, TV, Internet. And history has preserved them better, too. Uh, Washington probably wasn't the first one to use tide as turning in print, but he seems to be the first one whose writings got preserved well enough for that to pop up. <clears throat> and although presidents are political animals through and through. Uh, this podcast isn't political, so I'm not trying to choose phrases that are necessarily representative of that president, his politics or success. Uh, and as, as an aside that some might take as political, but to me just seems like common sense. It's really weird to me that when I refer to a president's politics, it's straight to his politics, uh, when my natural incl inclination would be to say his or her. Uh, someday, no doubt, but uh, it's high time for that, I think. So I, I'm just looking at phrases or words that a president came up with or popularized that struck my interest uh, because of their relationship to language and history, uh, not because of uh, politics. <clears throat> and I've always thought that looking at the presidents was an interesting lens to view the history of this country. Uh, although some might call it reductivist or criticize it for overly subscribing to the great man theory of history, uh, but to me it's undeniable that presidents have had a huge impact. And it's not just saying that history was made by these individuals, although some of them were truly uh, great men who made history. Uh, rather, a lot of times these presidents are just icons or symbols of where the real power lies uh, or should lie uh, in a democracy, and that's with the movements and the views of the people that elected them. And I remember when my dad uh, brought home a, a, a CD-ROM uh, with the Encarta Encyclopedia on it. And this was before we had the internet, before Wikipedia, and I spent countless hours on the computer uh, playing around with Encarta, uh, looking at the maps, playing trivia games, just clicking on article after article. And I just couldn't believe that all this knowledge was at my fingertips. Uh, some of it about exotic places and people I'd never heard of before, uh, some of it giving me new information about old stuff I thought I knew about, but now saw in a different light. And it was also a bit overwhelming, uh, which is maybe one reason why one day I decided to sit down with Encarta and memorize the U.S. presidents in order. Uh, I think it was uh, probably a way to try to make this vast body of knowledge uh, seem more manageable, uh, graspable, uh, if I could reduce it to 42 men uh, at the time. And once I memorized them, I, I never forgot them for some reason. Uh, a bit of knowledge that comes in handy when you're playing along at home with Jeopardy. Uh, but it also just gives a nice timeline of this country's political development, I think. At any rate, let, let's go in order and start looking at the presidents, uh, their use of language, and see what's stuck around until today. Uh, with Washington, we have 
the tightest earning that was mentioned in episode four, but Washington's also credited with being the first one to come up with a number of words and phrases in a novel way that became the standard and common usage. And perhaps the foremost one here is the use of the word administration uh, to describe a president's time in office, his policies, and the people working under him. You know, think Biden administration or Trump administration. And this usage came into being from Washington's farewell address in 1796 when he wrote, in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of intentional error. Uh, Washington is also credited with being the first to use words such as bakery and indoors, uh, among many others. Next up, we have John Adams. Uh, in 1774, Adams was engaging in a, a public debate uh, using the pseudonym Novanglis with a guy named Daniel Leonard who was using the pseudonym Massachusetts, and they published a series of newspaper letters in which Leonard, or Massachusetts, uh, defended the authority of the British Parliament over the American colonies, and, and Adams argued for a, for a limit to British imperial authority. And in one of those letters, Adam, Adams had the following to say, Obsta principis, nip the shoots of arbitrary power in the bud is the only maxim which can ever preserve the liberties of any people. And that first bit, obsta principis, is Latin, and it translates to withstand the beginning or resist the first approachments or encroachments. And, and the more colloquial phrase Adams uses here, nip it in the bud, has been around for a long time, uh, since the 16th century at least, and it derives from the debudding of plants, uh, putting a stop to something while it's still in its early development. And in horticulture, this is usually done for good reason, as nipping new buds on plants and trees often forces the plant to put its energies to more productive uses. Uh, if you've ever grown basil in a pot at home, for example, this is a good one to nip in the bud because this, as soon as those flower stems start forming, the basil begins to lose its taste and doesn't do as good a job of producing those tasty leaves. And I also think the idiom is pretty apt in the context Adams is using it in. Uh, by nipping British imperial power in the bud, that American energy uh, can be put to more productive uses. And uh, finally, on an unrelated note, uh, to the nip in, uh, a couple of sentences after this nip it in the bud reference, uh, Adams starts railing against a whole host of things that he thinks are sapping the American Constitution, uh, including foppery which is defined as an affected and excessive concern with one's clothes and appearance. And agree with Adams here or not about the sap-sucking danger of foppery, I like the use of that word here and, and wish I heard it uh, more often. Uh, third in line is Thomas Jefferson. And it seems like with the success of the musical Hamilton and, and some other stuff that uh, Jefferson's reputation has suffered a bit, but he was as influential as they get when it comes to the founding and early development of the nation. And he was also a true polymath, uh, somebody whose knowledge spans a variety of subjects. Uh, he wasn't quite up there with Benjamin Franklin, but there's a bit of truth uh, to the old joke of JFK's when uh, at a White House dinner in 1962 that was honoring some Nobel Prize winners, uh, JFK, quip, JFK quipped that, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge, that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Uh, Jefferson spoke several languages, was a pioneer in the fields of zoology and botany, was a remarkable librarian and author, a great lawyer, 
uh, a prolific inventor who invented things like the pedometer and the swivel chair. Uh, but for purposes of this episode, it's his work with language that stands out. Uh, Jefferson is credited with the addition of over a hundred new words uh, to American English. In fact, he's credited with adding the word uh, neologism itself, which uh, means a newly coined word or expression. Uh, in 1820, he wrote to John Adams as follows, I am a friend to neology. It is the only way to give to a language copiousness and euphony. And he did add some euphony to American English uh, with words such as belittle, which is just such a perfect word that contains all you need to know about it within the word itself. Uh, Circumambulator is another one uh, used to describe the explorer John Ledyard, who wanted to be the first person to walk around the earth. Uh, and he had Jefferson's enthusiastic support and direction, uh, a precursor, I suppose, to Jefferson's support of Lewis and Clark uh, to walk across the continent. Um, and as an aside, Ledyard, with financial backing from Lafayette and some other folks, uh, did embark upon the attempt in 1786, and he'd made it from London most of the way across Russia all the way to Yakutsk, uh, but Catherine the Great had him arrested and deported him, which put an end to the attempt. Anyway, uh, some other words Jefferson is responsible for in American English include Ottoman, pedicure, mammoth, anglophobia, electioneering, indecipherable, and authentication. And for a guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence, it's no surprise that Jefferson wanted this new country to have its uh, language independence as well. And to do so, besides creating all these neologisms, he looked to that more archaic form of the English language, Anglo-Saxon. And so fond was he of this language that he actually wrote a treatise on its grammar and, and the virtues of its study for an understanding of modern English. And he believed that Anglo-Saxon was more welcoming to new words and expressions and, and that by looking back to this tongue that predated oppression in England, that Americans could evolve their own language into a uniquely American tongue. And he had this to say in 1813, certainly so great growing a population spread over such an extent of country with such a variety of climates of production of arts must enlarge their language to make it answer its purpose of expressing all ideas the new as well as the old an american dialect will there be therefore be formed its new character may separate it in name as well as in power from the mother tongue and Jefferson felt that the american tongue was being held back by the english governing authorities and that if it were permitted freely to draw from all its legitimate sources, it could bloom into its full potential. Of course, many on both sides of the Atlantic were alarmed uh, that Americans were adding words to, quote, uh, their language, and, and, and many thought that the English language belonged to those who lived in Great Britain, and that Americans should show their appreciation of being allowed to use it by not making any changes to it. And Jefferson thought this idea was foolish, uh, as did Noah Webster, who created the first real dictionary of the American language in 1806, uh, which uh, prompted one critic to respond with outrage when he came upon two words that had never before appeared in a dictionary, presidential and congressional. <coughs> uh, these words were <coughs> denounced as barbarous, and the critic said that they were unnecessary and offensive to the ear. But, of course, American English just kept on borrowing words from other languages, including words from native tongues, like skunk, squash, and many, many more, as well as words from 
uh, other languages from the immigrants that came, came here, such as Slay and Coleslaw from the Dutch, and so many more from so many other languages. And, and some other words and phrases just came straight out of the American experience. Uh, play ball, eat crow, bark up the wrong tree, paddle one's own canoe. And I, for one, am uh, grateful that Jefferson wasn't beholden to some snobbish and prescriptivist conception of what American English should be because he really helped push it into a more authentic and colorful language. Uh, James Madison, who came after Jefferson, followed up with a couple of new idi idiomatic words of his own. Uh, the best one, I think, is squatter, uh, which, like Jefferson's belittle, is one of those poetic ones that define themselves in a concise, colorful way. And the use of the word squatter uh, to refer to the practice of setting up house in an abandoned building or property comes from a letter from James Madison to George Washington in 1788 when Madison was lamenting the practice of squatting in Maine, uh, describing to Washington some of the factions who, who might uh, be opposed to the newly drafted Constitution, uh, including a group of representatives from Maine who occupied land owned by others and to which they had no legal title. Uh, as Madison wrote, many of them and their constituents are only squatters upon other people's land, and they are afraid of being brought to account. Uh, moving along to James Monroe, number five. Uh, considering that he was the originator of the Mon Monroe Doctrine, which is first articulated in 1823, warns European nations that the United States wouldn't tolerate further colonization or puppet monarchs in the Americas, you'd think that he'd also be the originator of some American English idioms or neologisms, but I can't find any. Uh, all his writings seem pretty plain and dry. A sample quote from him is, to impose taxes when the public ex exigencies require them is an obligation of the most sacred character, especially with the free people. Uh, and that's about as poetic as he seems to have gotten. Uh, uh, moving along to John Quincy Adams. Uh, perhaps the most famous phrase attributable to him is uh, the gag rule. And he didn't come up with the phrase, but He's primarily responsible for its origination. Uh, the gag rule is a rule that forbids the raising, consideration, or discussion of a particular topic by members of a legislative or decision-making body. And in Adams' case, that was the U.S. House of Representatives, as Adams found himself rather rest restless in his post-presidency, and so he served nine terms in the, in the House after having been president. And there in the House, Adams became perhaps the most prominent national leader uh, opposing slavery where he condemned it as a moral abomination in some pretty strong terms. And he was persistent about it. Uh, and among other things, he kept presenting citizen petition after citizen petition requesting the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia. And in response to these constant petitions, in 1836, the House imposed a gag rule that immediately tabled any petitions about slavery, which prevented them from being printed, read, discussed, or voted upon. Uh, in 1844, uh, John Quincy Adams successfully led the fight to have this uh, gag rule rescinded. Uh, on to Andrew Jackson, president number seven in the face on the $20 bill, uh, for the time being anyway, until Harriet Tubman replaces him. And he and his supporters founded the Democratic Party, and he's long been seen as a small-D Democrat, somebody who was for the rights of the common man and against a corrupt aristocracy. And he's spent a lot of time on the frontier, uh, and his treatment of Native Americans has been widely criticized as his administration was responsible for the Trail of Tears, among other things. And so given 
his background and his nickname of Old Hickory, you'd expect from him some language from the common vernacular, some salt-of-the-earth type stuff. And, and indeed, one of his quotes along those lines is, any man worth his salt will stick up for what he believes right, but it takes a slightly better man to acknowledge instantly and without reservation that he is in error. That's a pretty good quote, I think, and some uh, decent advice to live by. And as for the idiom here, uh, worth one salt, it's fairly recent in origin as these things go, dating most likely to the early 1800s. Uh, so Jackson was one of the early adopters of this phrase, it looks like. And there are some similar ol older phrases that have a more ancient origin. Uh, for example, worth one's weight in gold uh, dates to at least the 1200s, and worth one's while uh, dates to the 1300s. And there's also a bunch of interesting idioms relating to salt that would be fun to get into in another episode. But, but worth one salt here originally meant to be worth one's pay or salary. Uh, the word salary derives from the Latin word salarium or salarium, and uh, sol is the Latin word for salt. And, and some believe that Roman soldiers were actually paid with salt. And that brings us to number eight, Martin Van Buren, old Kinderhook. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Democratic Party, and he traced his political lineage to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, and he was also the first president not of British origin. Uh, his descendants were Dutch, and he grew up speaking Dutch and just learned English in school. And the Dutch community he grew up in was Kinderhook, New York, uh, hence the nickname Old Kinderhook, which often got abbreviated as OK. And most historians agree that Van Buren was just an OK president at best. So perhaps his most lasting legacy will be his role in the spread of the phrase OK, uh, which originated in 1839 and 1840, around the time of his second campaign for president. And OK might well be the most frequently used and recognized word in the world these days, uh, as so many languages have, have, have adopted it. Uh, probably because of its sim simplicity and uh, versatility. Almost every language has an O vowel, a K consonant, and an A vowel. So OK is a distinctive combination of very familiar elements. And so uh, with its easy adaptability to the language of texting, uh, it doesn't look like OK is going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, I think about OK Boomer uh, as an example of uh, its continued popularity. Uh, so how, how did OK arise? Uh, well, in 1839, about the time Van Buren was gearing up for his second presidential campaign, there was somewhat of an, an abbreviation craze in America, uh, along with a deliberate and ironic uh, misspelling of words. And so an editor of a Boston newspaper was taking a pot shot at a Providence newspaper by referencing sarcastically something it printed and, and then adding the common editorial epithet at the end, all correct. But then going on to abbreviate this, all correct is OK, which was a deliberate misspelling of all correct as all correct, O-L-L-K-O-R-R-E-C-T. Uh, and OK appeared in a, another Boston newspaper three days later, and then it gradually started to seep into uh, the vernacular, but it, it took the second campaign of Van Buren, though, to send OK on its path to world domination. Uh, in 1840, Van Buren was running against uh, William Henry Harrison, uh, the war hero from the Battle of Tippecanoe, who had the catchy campaign slogan of Tippecanoe and Tyler too, uh, with the Tyler part referring to his running mate, John Tyler. 
And Van Buren needed a catchy rallying cry of his own, I suppose, and his supporters came up with OK, a reference to his nickname Old Kinderhook, and OK clubs started to sprout up around the country. And Harrison's opponents tried to do some political judo and turn this phrase against Van Buren, and so they started to adopt it too, to use it to uh, beat up on Andrew Jackson, uh, Van Buren's mentor and most popular supporter. And they spread the rumor that it came from this idea that Jackson was such a terrible speller that he believed Ole Correct, O-L-E-K-U-R-R-E-K, was the popular spelling of Ole Correct, and that Jackson signed OK on his presidential papers to indicate his approval. And this myth spread far and wide, and OK entered the lexicon to stay. And the fact that the expression OK meant something like it is so in the Native American language of Choctaw also probably helped things along. And the legendary gunfight in the OK Corral in 1881 with Doc Holliday and their brothers probably helped with its popularity too, I'd imagine. And there's another idiom that originated in that 1840 presidential campaign that's still in use today, believe it or not. But I'll get into that one and more in the next episode, uh, part two of this presidential series. Thanks for listening.